This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavani and John Damaris. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Art of War. I'm your host, John. And I'm your host, Nick. And today we have a special guest, uh, Richard Siegler of Tau fame, who's currently, I think, sixth in the ITC. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Richard. Hi, everybody. I'm Richard Siegler, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here and talk about Tau. Awesome, Richard. Thanks for coming on. We are super excited to have you. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about yourself before we get started. I'm sure people are interested to kind of hear uh, what you do. Okay, sure thing. So uh, in real life, outside of 40K, I am a historian and teach at Florida State University. Um, but in 40K, I've been playing for quite a while. I started in third edition and played until fifth, but really mostly kind of casual garage hammer stuff, uh, not really competitively. And then I came back in fifth edition, uh, and I really started getting into the competitive tournament scene around August of last year. Uh, so if you haven't heard my name before or seen it before, it's because I'm still very new to the competitive scene. Um, but I've been doing very well. Yeah, it's actually really interesting you've been able to pick it up so quickly. Um, usually, I, I've been around for forever, so I kind of know most of the big names within the hobby, but you've definitely come up out of nowhere this past season and really just, you know, skyrocketed into the top of the ITC, and here you are. So what's that been like for you as a re-getting back in the hobby, I guess? Um, I have a long history of playing RTS games. So I've you know played strategy games for a long time, and I've been very good at them. It's kind of been a natural progression, but um, I went to my very first GT in about August of last year, DACACON, went 4-1, and one, and then in October I went to the Crucible Major and also went 4-1. and one. So since there I've, you know, kind of started to do better and better, um, and then finishing third at BAO this year was my best finish so far at a large tournament. That's actually really interesting. So... Um... Your best finish is third, but yet you're still in the top five for ITC, so you must be very consistent. At a super major. Uh, I finished first at a GT. I won an Ironman GT, and then I finished top three in pretty much every major I've been to. Nice. So you're very consistent, which is good. I mean, that's, that's important. I'm trying. <laughs> so you've been playing Tau for the majority of the season. Um, how have you been liking it? Um, I really started Tau because it was my mother's favorite army, and I wanted him to start playing it. And I've just turned out that I'm a good Tau player, I guess. Um, it's not my favorite faction. Grey Knights are my favorite faction. Um, but unfortunately, their book isn't quite good enough. Um, but Tau is a very interesting faction. It really is about the movement phase and about shooting. Um, but I've thrown in a lot of close combat as well with wrapping things, and we'll talk about that later. Right, I, I am so curious you said this now, because when anyone normal speaks of Tau, they'll say it's a shooting army and that's all that really matters you first listed shoot your movement as the most important phase and then shooting as a secondary and then you acknowledge that the close combat phase existed which is something i don't think any top player has ever done <laughs> it's so very we'll very definitely important get into that 
Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on it. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about your list and what you've been running with? Okay, sure thing. Uh, so the current iteration of the list is three detachments. It's all Tau Sept. And the first one's an Outrider detachment. It has a Enforcer commander with three cyclic ion blasters and ATS. And then it has two shield drones. Uh, the fast attack slots are two Pathfinder teams, each with the five drones. Uh, two shield drones, the Recon, the Accelerator, and the Grab drone. And then I have three tactical drone units, eight shield drones, seven shield drones, and then another seven shield drones. Then I move on to the Vanguard detachment, where I have another a cyclic ion commander, same loadout, with two shield drones, three riptides, all with the same loadout, SMS, ATS, the burst cannon, and a velocity tracker for fly. And then I have a supreme command detachment, and that has three fire blades, all with two shield drones, a third cyclic ion commander, and then an ethereal on hover drone with two shield drones. Um, so very much a lot of shield drones. It's 46 drones total, 40 shield drones, uh, 6 CP. That's a, There's a lot of interesting going on, interesting stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. um, for those of you who aren't super familiar with Tau and just understand it at the, the cursory level, um, this may look like every other Talus, you know, triple riptides, bunch of drones, that kind of thing. Um, the devil is in the details when it comes to Tau. Virtue's made some really interesting choices. Velocity trackers over target locks, no marksman, no battalion, so he's lighter on the CP. All that stuff, it may not seem like big deals when, you you know, the mainstay units are still there. It's enormous. Um, so that's what we're really going to try to cover this episode here. Um, speaking of which, why don't you just start explaining some of this stuff to us? So uh, why why don't you have Fireside Marksman, I guess? Like, do you think you have enough marker lights? I know you have the Pathfinders, but um, most people often go for the those smaller footprint unshootable marker lights in the form of the character keyword, whereas Pathfinders can just get shot back. And with a higher ballistic skill, you get some more reliability out of them. So why have you opted for Pathfinders instead? And why do you forego the marksman? All right, so there's a whole bunch of things there. Uh, the first thing, before I get to the marker lights, I just want to talk about the list design, what I was trying to go for with the list. Uh, for me, Tau's greatest strength is its durability. Okay, Tau is a late game army for me, at least the suit version of Tau lists. Um, so I, when I go into a game, I always plan to play till the very end of the game, uh, usually six turns. Um, and, uh, you know, to ensure that happens, I always play with a chess clock. Um, so the list counts on playing all six turns. Okay. Um, the other thing is that this list, as we're going to talk about with the two-man shield drone units, often gives up points the first three turns. And that's perfectly okay. The list wins games, turns four, five, and six. Okay, so I went for durability over, you know, the mass shooting of the Mech Tau version. Um, now, for marker lights, I take four BS2 marker lights, um, and that is primarily because there are so many stacking minuses to hit in the game, particularly Plague Bearers and Eldar Flyers. With the four BS2 marker lights and the stratagem, the uplink marker light stratagem to add D3, I can almost always get five marker lights on a target with minus two to hit. Um, I could have thrown in the marksman if I wanted to, if I cut some shield drones, um, or if I cut some of the pathfinders. But I have the pathfinder teams in there less for the pathfinders and their marker lights and more for the drones. The drones are a critical component of my list. Um, the drones, just like the pathfinders, get a pregame move up to seven inches. Um, and so sometimes in games you'll be playing on Dawn of War, and this happened at BAO when I played against Junior. I seized on him, 
I got to go first. I pregame move my shield, my Pathfinder team drones up. And then on my first turn, I move and advance them. And, you know, that first turn, they're right outside of his deployment zone, blocking two of his knights, uh, his gallant and the valiant in his deployment zone between two ruins. Um, so right there, I often use them for move blocking. The other major reason that I have them in here is because Gene Stero Cult in my meta is one of the most you know, prominent sort of bugabear lists that I need to deal with, and the Grav Drone is critical to that. You hide the Grav Drone in corners of ruins, and you know, somewhere out of line of sight, but where if they're making a charge move within 12 inches, the Grav Drone is going to be subtracting D3. And if Gene Stero Cult starts failing charges, it is brutal for them because they're just going to all their units are going to get picked up by the Sivmanders and the Riptides. Um, so that's the main reason, the two reasons that I have the Pathfinders in there. But I could definitely see having Marksmen as well. It's not like I don't like them. Uh, I just think the BS2 Marker Lights plus the Pathfinders is more than enough. That's a really great answer. Um, <laughs> so almost the pathfinders are kind of dual functionality there one they function as a source of marker lights but also almost more importantly it seems like you take them for their drones rather than the actual marker lights they come with is that right if i could if i could take the drones by themselves i would absolutely do it it's 48 points for six wounds um two shield drones and then you have the recon drone who's just two wounds he's nice if you take a smite you know you can put it on him um so I, the drones are absolutely critical. That pregame move is so huge against things like Lord Discordance or Gallants running up the board. Interesting. So you're just you're literally using them to just go first and move block people. Just keep them to points and to buy yourself turns of shooting. Absolutely. Is there so if there's not if you're running into an opponent where that's not the case, where there's no value to move blocking them, maybe if they're a flying based army, if they're just trying to shoot you also, if they have no interest in running forward towards you. Um do you find the drones less valuable? Um, on the first mission, if I go first, I can pregame move, then move and advance them, and I usually can nab the bonus point, uh, which is nice. I can just sacrifice one of them. doesn't really matter. I'll take that point. Um, but in general, I just leave them around the riptides and then, you know, save your protocol. So they have that dual fun. Yeah. At the end yeah, of the I day, mean, they are still drones. Yeah, they can all still just take a hit, right? The other thing is the accelerator drone really does help with the pathfinders. I often, you know, against stuff like Gene Circold or, you know, Horde armies, I'm using the Pathfinders with their shooting. Um, I have them next to a fire blade. I try and get them within half range and with the accelerator drone, that's much easier. And then it's three shots a piece. What is, what, I'm sorry, what does the accelerator drone do? If you're, if an infantry, Tau infantry unit is within uh, three inches of it, they get plus six inch range. Um, so instead of 18 inch range on the carbines, it goes to 24. So half range is 12. Um, so say something's making a charge move, all of a sudden I use the characters to get the first marker light to reroll ones. And then all of a sudden 15 shots are coming from five pathfinders <laughs> or 30 shots from two pathfinders. When, when your pathfinders or your marker light guys start pumping out crazy amounts of shots, all of a sudden it gets silly. You can definitely see that. I mean, that's, it's good to have that flexibility too, right? Cause one of the, the things I've noticed about competitive 40 K is you sort of have to have an answer for knights which forces you to be sort of concentrated in good firepower, but you also have to have an answer for hordes like Gene Steeler Cult or Orcs. So you also have to be able to, to DACA, right? Put a lot of shots out. So I think that's really, really smart. And it's not a huge investment for you to give you a little extra in that, that horde matchup. Well, it's, it's not... Most how lists... Go ahead, Richard. 
most Tau lists are taking the Fire Warriors, and so the Pathfinders kind of have that similar role. Um, we'll talk about when, you know, the question of what else I considered in my list, and we'll talk about Fire But uh, what was your question, Nick? Um, I was going to say, what the my brief flirting with Tau was, was one weekend long, basically, <laughs> Tau at a GT. Uh, I didn't do too shabby. Went four and one, got third. But uh, I often found myself with the issue of I felt like I was playing the game with six units, three commanders, three riptides. So having that little bit of real extra firepower when push comes to shove from your pathfinders with the pulse accelerator drone being able to pump out an actual amount of firepower, I could very much see that being useful. That way you don't have to waste an entire burst cannon on like 16 shots or 18 shots on like two guys just to make sure it goes away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I found interesting was that you described your Tau army as a late-game army. Uh, most Tau players I know, and, and I'm not just talking about like random guys you meet your local store, most top Tau players I, I talk to, very much deploy on the line, very front and center, um, and then playing on Montkai turn one, moving, advancing, all the Riptides into range. That way, regardless of how far back the other guy has deployed, you're, you're lighting him up on turn one, and that is the purpose of just dealing as much of an alpha strike as you can. That way, you're, you know, the purpose of an alpha strike is to reduce your opponent's capabilities early so he doesn't have enough to keep up late game. Not even imagining the turns four or five or exist or how they play. So, you know, you obviously have like a different mindset towards it. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. A lot of those Talus, either they're taking Mech Tau, um, and so they have a ton of SMS, they've got all the ion cannons, they got all the secret missiles that are coming out turn one, or they're playing the suit version with broadsides. So it's usually three broadsides, three riptides, and then, you know, a bunch of drones and some characters. Um, those lists tend to also run Shadow Sun, the suit lists, so that they can Monka, and then the second turn they Kalyon, and it's just do as much damage as possible. You're not really moving, you're not going all over the map until later in the game. Um, so for me, I much prefer the reliability of keeping my key units alive for as long as possible and not you know, forcing myself to do as much damage as possible because sometimes you're just not going to do the damage. Riptides with a heavy burst cannon, sometimes you're, you know, oftentimes against a lot of these things like Caladius tanks, tank commanders, knights, you're wounding on fives unless you pop the stratagem. And wounding on fives is not a reliable way to kill things very quickly. Uh, sometimes you're just going to not get a lot of wound rolls. Um, and what are you going to do when that happens? Well, my list isn't really designed to just go out and table people in the first couple of turns. It's going to table you, you know, usually fairly often, um, but it's going to do so turn six, maybe turn five. Um, so I play the slower game, and that's the reason why I take so many shield drones, is I am going to keep those riptides and the commanders alive for as long as possible because those are what's going to do the damage. And in particular, the three Cyclic Ion Commanders, which is also a bit unusual, those guys can easily pick up a thousand points of your opponent's army um, within the six turns. Uh, they are absolutely insane in how much damage they put out and how quickly they do it. Also, um, just to make sure I understand, those Cyclic Ion Commanders benefit from the commander rule or the character rule, so they're hard to target? Yes, they have six wounds, they have the character rule, um, and the Cyclic Ion... When you overcharge it, it becomes strength eight. With ATS, it's minus two, and then it's D3 damage, and it's three shots each. So with three of them, nine shots per commander. So in my army, I'm putting out 27 of those shots a turn, hitting on twos, almost always re-rolling ones. 
Um, so it's absolutely brutal against, you know, any sort of infantry, vehicles, knights, Titanic stuff. Also, <laughs> like, because you're you're not playing like broadsides, you can concentrate your drones more on your riptides, right? Um, absolutely. Yeah, so that actually make because they're actually a little tougher nut. To, they're kind of a tough nut to crack anyway, because they can be wherever they want. They're pretty mobile, and then um, you know they have a good armor save. So I, I find it very frustrating to shoot Tau, <laughs> and I think your <laughs> your list is probably even worse. Which is you know congratulations, that's uh, a feat. <laughs> uh, it is very frustrating to play against. One of the reasons why I don't take broadsides, other than the fly change that happened in the last FAQ, which. If your broadsides get tagged, it's just going to be a bad time, regardless of what else is happening. Um, so that's one reason. But the other is they're very they're much easier to wound than riptides. And so you're often using Savior Protocol much more often on them. Whereas I, in my list, I want people shooting at the riptides. I want to hide the drones as much as possible, force them to shoot the riptides. Um, and as soon as I start getting lower on the drones, I just put the three-up invulns on them. And it's really the commanders that are going to start doing more damage at that point. Right, and then the Riptides are just soaking with their good invul save, right, uh, and you know chipping in. But then the commanders are actually what's doing the damage. That's interesting. Do you find that the range of your commanders is ever very prohibitive? Um, one of the main reasons that I don't value cyclic commanders so highly is that, in a, in my opinion, a way Tau often lose once you've learned how to not be wrapped, which will cover, is uh, they get outshot. So. Having 18-inch range guns on a, basically half of your firepower feels like it's a, it's lending itself to that issue. How do you deal with not being outshot? Uh, one of the, you know, assuming we have decent terrain, um, one, I'm, I'm perfectly happy sitting in midfield and getting all those recon points or King of the Hill or any of, you know, ground control late game. Um, I'm completely happy taking those and only killing one, two things a turn. Um, but in general, the commanders, I almost always start them on the board, regardless of what the deployment is. Maybe if my opponent's going to be way in the back corner of, you know, Vanguard or whatnot. Um, but if it's shortboard, they're always starting on the board and I'll just move and advance them up, uh, with that turn one Manka behind the Riptides. Um, so almost always they're getting in, into shooting range turn two, um, maybe turn three if they if my opponent deployed really conservatively, but that's perfectly okay. Three turns of them off shooting uh, is just an insane amount of damage. They are going to make their points back and often triple them uh, between each commander. Uh, so I'm not, once again, it's because I'm focused on the late game um, and playing the mission, I'm not too worried about, um, you know, tabling my opponent as quick as possible. It's perfectly okay if they're not doing damage early. They're going to do damage. Makes total sense. Um, so since you're, you're, and I agree with your philosophy completely, I want to just get that out there. Um, I find that when you, when you stop playing armies that front load all their damage and focus on killing your opponent as the main methodology for victory, you get to play the mission, you get to use the movement phase, those known factor quantities that kind of work regardless of what your opponent is. And that's where you get a higher level of consistency with your play. And that's how you end up winning those super majors or as you've done, just first, second, third, first, second, third, over and over again. Um, you said a lot of that is basically based on playing the mission and things. However, as you've noted, you have a lot of two-man drone units, these pathfinders, relatively easy to kill units. 
meaning that your opponent's always really, really going to have the ability to get kill something and kill more against you, at least for the first few turns. How do you deal with? How do you play the mission while having such a huge liability built into your list? So, here's the reasoning behind the two man drone units. I know a lot of people see them, or the, you know, they're used to the West Coast style list where they have the big twelve man shield drone or gun drone units. Um, I don't like those for a couple reasons. One is that having all of these little two man drone units is an they have incredible value as a fly screening unit, especially against armies like Gene Circle. Do you want to drop your 10 Acolytes or your Aberrant unit against six shield drones spread out across, you know, a semicircle? No, absolutely not. Um, that's a complete waste of points. Uh, you're never going to get your value there. But you're going to have to keep doing it because I'm going to just keep sacrificing those two-man units. Uh, and I don't mind if you kill more of those turns. Um, the, other, the other reason is that those two-man units especially once you start getting later into you know, matches, they're very, very good against high-volume, multi-damage weapons, like the Avenger Gatling Cannons, Heavy Burst Cannons, Gladius Tanks, all this stuff that we see in the meta, the Punisher Tank Commanders. Um, you are not going to be able to take out all my drones in the first two turns. It's basically impossible. Um, so I'm always going to have shield drones going into turns three, four, maybe even more. Um, so those are kind of the reasons why I've chosen the two-man drone units, and I perfectly accept that the first three turns I may give up Killmore, but I'm not going to give it up those next couple turns. The other thing is Butcher's Bill is the obvious one that you're going to pick against this list, um, but if the terrain is good enough where I can force you to shoot at the Riptides, I'm going to just go ahead and pull you know six of those two-man drone units through Savior Protocol. So sure, you're going to get six kills this turn, you'll get your Killmore point, you'll get a Butcher's Bill point, but after that, it's going to get a lot more difficult to get those points. That's dirty. I'll just say that right away. <laughs> uh, so I guess another advantage maybe in thinking about it is those two-man drone units are probably easier to hide. Very easy to hide. <laughs> and I don't mind leaving them back on a home field objective or whatnot. Yeah. Per, uh, per your advice, Richard, I was a big proponent of the two-man shield drones at my little Tau adventure I went on last month at the GT. And they were by far my MVPs. Just having like seven or eight little two mans running around, just for exactly all the reasons you just listed. <laughs> so, mission aside, even if you play in the ETC format that has kill points, even if you play in the ITC format that has that concept of kill more, butcher's bill, that kind of thing, worth it. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so, one thing I learned when playing Tau, uh, again for that that brief weekend, was I have i really felt like i needed my battalion and that may be because i was new to it and i didn't know how to be ultra stingy with my command point usage but i wasn't doing silly stuff mostly all i ever did was uh mm -hmm. plus one wound against the knight if there was a knight or something like that um bump up my narcolite counter with that one stratagem or make my riptides function normally because i would often get riptides very injured because i'd be bullies with them i'd use them to pressure the opponent mm -hmm. with their durability basically adding on a bunch of drones as excess wounds meant i could kind of be a jerk with them but that did make them take damage um how did you how do you cope without having a battalion and only living with a six cp life <laughs> okay so at bao i did the changes that i had made i had taken shadows on there with two sibmanders um so that i could monka the first turn and then uh, Kali on the second and i had fire warriors in that version of the list so 10 cp plus the pure tight engram chip, regenning some. Um, in, the, in that case, I just found that it was too many. I would often end games with some uh, command points because I was almost always getting them back with the pure tight chip. 
Um, and really, the key stratagems that I'm going to use with the list are the uplink marker light stratagem, especially against armies with minuses to hit, and then the act at full profile on the riptides. Everything else is very situational. Those so are the two. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I almost never use the plus one to wound. I don't. I don't think it's worth it. Um, I'll just kill the knight the next turn. I'm not worried about it. Oh wow. So I was afraid. Just not to interrupt you, but I was afraid. Not afraid of, but I was very. I didn't want to leave a knight limping on four or five wounds, have it act normally, and be a giant pain in the butt. I'd much rather just knock it out of the park first. I mean, I had been playing months against the Castellan with the three up invuln and all the nonsense, um, and I just ignore it the whole game. You know, turn five, I'll kill it, or turn four, um, but just keep letting it shoot. Um, so having knights there, not a big deal. Uh, once the Sibmanders get in range, then knights disappear really quickly. All right, can I back up for just a second? Sorry. I just want to point out your Tau privilege. Anybody that says, oh, I just let the castle and shoot for five turns and that's ignore it. That is, save that's your, just not... Save your protocol is pretty good. <laughs> it's more than pretty good. It's amazing. But I mean, that, that's... I don't know. That, I'm going to call that... I wouldn't call that Tau privilege. I think most top armies in the game, and this, this may be a knock to anyone who's not playing top army, <laughs> most top armies in the game can absolutely ignore a castle for four or five turns. And that's kind of by force, you know. Some guy could just show up with a castling, and uh, you're going to get shot by that guy for a lot of turns. You better be able to deal with that. Okay, that's fair. I guess my that's my new... I mean, like, like orcs have just tons of bodies. Gene Steer Cult are immune to the shooting phase. Tau have drones. And, like, even your mono granite list, uh, John, like... How many times have you lost to a Castellan? Like, don't you just hide? Yeah, no, I I actually dunk on the Castellan every time I see it. But that's... <laughs> uh, are you saying my... I just like calling people out. I'm sorry. Are you, are, you, are you saying my mono Grey Knight army is good? Because that's what it sounded like you just said. <laughs> I think we should get back on topic to the top. Fair, fair <laughs> All right. Going back to the Fire Warriors for one minute, um, I'd rather honestly just have 10 more drones instead of the Fire Warriors there. Um, they're a liability for getting wrapped, uh, which usually doesn't happen, but it could happen. Um, and their firepower, usually they're just sitting in the back of my you know, army doing nothing. And I'd rather just have more drones to save your protocol. That was actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about as well. Um, you'll see kind of two different schools of thought on Tau. One is like you take no foot dudes because, again, like you said, they're a liability to being wrapped. Or you suck it up, take your cadre fireblades, take your marksmen, take the battalion... Most people opt for that one because that's just a lot of utility you get at the liability of being wrapped. You're kind of doing that version where you have Kadri Fireblades and you have the same amount of foot guys in the form of Pathfinders, but you're still opting not to run the Fire Warriors because you just don't like them from a useful standpoint, which I totally understand. But you think it's worth running the foot guys, risking the wraps? How do you deal with that? Um, almost always, anytime that I'm playing an army where I could potentially be wrapped and it would be disastrous, like against Gene Circled or Orcs, uh, either all of the infantry are up on or an upper level of a ruin or some sort of building uh, where it's going to be really, really difficult to ever wrap them, or they are base to base with my Riptides and then the drones are all outside screening. Um, so even just to get to the infantry would be a, a task. Um, those are the two ways that I tend to play it. So a lot of players, uh, like top players are all well aware of like leaving our fire warriors and base with the riptides to avoid being wrapped. Could you just elaborate on that in detail for the less experienced of the viewers? Yeah, so if your opponent is trying to wrap one of your fire warriors to try point it, 
so that you couldn't move back. If it's base to base with a Riptide or other fly units with nice, you know, base sizes, you know, say they come in, on your turn you simply would move the Riptide away and then there's a large space where you can fall back with the squad into that space. Um, so it's impossible to try point those infantry models uh, when there's like a large fly base around them. Yeah, that's uh, also a trick that Eldar often use with their flyer bases or wave serpents. Um, most armies have access to doing something like that. So it's a very useful trick if you're playing an army that does not want to be wrapped. Um, trying to remember what I was going to ask. John, do you have anything? Oh, I was going to ask if there's anything else that you considered. Because, I mean, looking at your list, to me, to the untrained eye, it looks like it's a little light on firepower compared to most Talus. Now, I know you've said that your cyclic ion commanders do a lot of heavy lifting, but uh, I don't I guess most most Talus seem like they have more shitty in them. They, they tend to. So the majority of my time in a game is always spent in the movement phase rather than the shooting phase. My shooting phase are almost always very quick. Um, and that's because really the damage is going to come from the three reptiles and the three commanders. Everything else is either marker lights or the pathfinders are almost always dead the first couple of turns um, against shooty armies. So those three things are, those six things are going to fire, they're going to do their damage, and then I'm going to move on. Um, and most of the time is spent in movement phase and then sometimes the assault phase. So before we move on to the assault phase, which is something we absolutely have to cover with Tao. Um, <laughs> one thing I did when I played with Tao was I felt like if I just rolled poorly during a shooting phase or something like that and my opponent survived where he shouldn't have, there wasn't anything I could do about it. Like if, uh, if my gene stealer cult army whiffs in the psychic and the shooting phase, I could still adjust for that in my assault phase, which I can use as a second movement phase. And maybe that's what you mean. Um, also, if I, if I just roll attacks in close combat and I fall short, worst comes to worst, I can fight twice, and I'll still get the job done if I really need to. Tao don't have a shoot twice stratagem that is worth anything, um, and Tao don't have any damage output from any other phase besides shooting, or maybe in the good phase if you take Sunshark Bombers. But realistically, you have one phase to get your damage done, and if it didn't happen there, there is no recovery. It's just... You have to deal with it now. How do you cope with that? Or do you disagree? So the first way that I cope with that is through the list design, which is why I take so many drones. So that even if I have a bad turn or you know potentially two bad turns, which is really rare, I'm still gonna my key units are still going to be there. Um, the other way is through the assault phase. Uh, so against armies that have infantry or units that can't fly. I am almost always trying to wrap them with my big shield drone units. And then either I'm tagging the Riptides in or I'm just leaving there, leaving them there with the drone strung out so that they're still within three inches of the Riptide so I could save your protocol when I feel like it. Um, and that is to you know cut down on some extra shooting that I could be uh, taking. And the other way is late game against you know tank commanders, you know guard artillery, stuff like that, stuff without the fly keyword. I'm usually sending the Riptides out with the 3-up invuln and then tagging those units with them um, so that they won't be firing at me the next turn. So I tend to play this list very aggressive, especially turns 4, 5, and 6, where really it's about keeping the commanders alive and less about the Riptides and the drones. Wow, <clears throat> that's amazing. So like, if I understand you correctly, you have a Tau army 
that is moving across the board, wrapping people in combat. Uh, that blows my mind because I've watched a lot of Tau videos and usually they're just like move to the center of the board, castle up, shoot you, overwatch you, you know, collect points at the end of the game, win the game. It actually makes total sense. Um, as I said earlier in the video, and I think Richard may agree, um, oftentimes the way Tau loses by being outshot. Uh, their their range brackets aren't too strong. Um, just 36 inches is not across the table. Um, so if you fight something like a Caladius with 16-inch range, and it can function from outside of range, outside of your range, for a couple turns, you're taking a lot of losses before they get there. Or some armies may just shoot harder than you. So Richard is kind of dealing with that with uh, taking extra drones, so it's just more stuff for you need to deal with, and assaulting you to avoid being shot, much like a Gene Stealer cult, an Orc army, like any basic assault army would try to wrap a you, wrap your units so they couldn't get charged or shot at. Richard's just doing the same thing. If he's being outshot, he's acknowledging it and doing something. But I think it's really smart. Um, do you? What do you do against an army that can? shoot and punch while in close combat. So maybe like a guard army with tank commanders or something like that with some smash captains or Bulgarin. Um, because then, yeah, of course, you can wrap them to avoid being shot, but you're just walking out of the frying pan into the oven, you know? Just different way of dealing damage. So in that case, I would just wrap with the shield drones, and then I'd leave the riptides and the commanders within six inches. You know, the drones would be strung out um, so that those key units are still within six, so I can overwatch with them um, if needed. But they would still be charging into shield drones, which, you know, even the the smash captains aren't going to do a ton of damage. Uh, so, so you you're still not really taking casualties because even though he can shoot you, he shoots your riptides, you bounce to the drones. Then when he goes to countercharge you, you just act like a tower exactly. and you just shoot him. That's really smart, really clever. Um, I want to save matchup talk for part two. I mean, there's a lot of matchups I want to go over. <laughs> Um, from an overall strategy perspective, though, um, what else do you think we should go over? Uh, so in most of my I'm using Monka turn one to control the middle of the board. So if, it's, if there's objectives in the middle, I want to be sitting on those objectives and then have the army strung out so that I can control that, the outer objectives. Um, because I usually like getting hold more early on um, and forcing my opponent to come to me and stop me from getting those points. Um, so very almost every game of Monkheim into the middle, um, and because I'm playing the mission, um, I'm also almost always taking recon as well uh, when I'm going to be a Monka move. That actually brings us to a, another awesome point. Um, you just said you take recon. Um, why are you picking secondaries for ITC? Um, I guess then we'll cover Nova and other formats afterwards. When you're picking secondaries, do you pick recon and, and like behind enemy lines even and those kinds of secondaries? King of the Hill, I imagine, is one tower be good at, um, or do you pick ones based on killing the opponent? Um, because that's what your army's ultimate strategy is to do, I suppose, or at least on paper it is. Yeah. So often, almost always, I take at least one. You know, I am going to kill these particular units, whether that's Big Game Hunter, Mark for Death, Butcher's Bill. Um, I almost always pick at least one, sometimes two, but oftentimes I just prefer having those board control secondaries because then I can kill at my own pace. I don't have to worry about killing, say, if I take big game and marked um, against an Eldar flyer list, I've got to kill all the flyers to get those points. Whereas with recon, I'm going to be sitting in the middle of the board anyway, 
get those four points, and then kill four of the flyers, which is completely reasonable. Um, so I don't tend to overload on the kill uh, secondaries. Right. You don't, and I, I think that's a much stronger way to play 40k either. If you're picking all the kill-based secondaries, you're going to be rewarded for tabling your opponent, which sounds great. If you're a table opponent, you want to get all the points. But in a game where you're not killing the other guy, he's alive, he's killing you back, he's doing his own thing, and you're also not scoring points because they're all tied up in killing the models you haven't killed. So hedging your bets by picking control-based secondaries and having the killing your opponent off the board as a different win condition is really strong. Also, doesn't that sort of lend itself to being a little more immune to bad dice or bad luck? So... You know, like Richard says, if he has one one kill objective, normally your dice aren't bad enough where you can you can get those four points. But um, in his illustration, where you have to kill all eight of the flyers, you know, even if you normally would kill them, you your dice might say no for a game. In which case, you leave two or even three points on the board. Where movement, you have a hundred percent control of. You can always score recon. Like you can always go stand in the right spot to score it. Yeah, and with so many two man shield drone units, I'm happy to send one off into the far corner. Um, even if I'm not, you know, completely in the center of the map already. Um, so there's units I can sacrifice to get the points that I need. Uh, I never plan on tabling my opponent, um, though, you know, this list does do well enough that it can table a lot of different lists. Um, it tends to score between 28 and 34 points in a normal ITC game. Um, and that's mainly because it's very, very difficult to get the bonus on most of the missions for Tau. That's still really solid scoring, so... I mean, I feel yeah, I feel... especially uh, in a lot of formats, um, you may be able to sneak into the top bracket or the elusive top eight as you have it uh, with a loss if your points are high enough. And having multiple thirty-point wins is probably going to be, on average, high enough. Do you find in tournaments you typically go undefeated, or do you lose a game due to matchups or something, and then just get in anyway? Um, I went six and zero at ATC. And then I went 4-0-1 at a, the Carolina Crusade Major, and then 4-0-1 at the Ironman um, in Augusta. So you've actually never lost this list? Not with this version. Oh my god. I'm <laughs> a So it's been doing very, very well. I guess that, that does bring me to another question, Richard. Um, so you've sort of settled, it sounds like you've settled on this particular version. Was there any other things that you had in your list besides Fire Warriors? Like you talked about having Shadow Sun and Fire Warriors in your list. What other things did you consider as iterations as you're iterating to get to this final endpoint? In general, um, I've thought about dropping the Pathfinder teams just to add even more shield drones into the list. Um, but I prefer having that pregame move. And I also think that um, those bigger shield drone units are too risky against high damage, high volume weapons, and also against um, the morale phase, uh, even with the ethereal nearby. So I just tend to, per I prefer having multiple units uh, rather than a couple big ones. As a follow-up question, have you considered some or any unorthodox units at all? Um, obviously you don't opt for broadsides, which we can cover, but things like Vespids I've considered for deep striking, mobility, flying screens for Tau, um, a devilfish to reduce drop count and also be another flying screen. Has anything like that or stealth using ghost kills for that weird nonsense teleporting they do? Anything like that ever crossed your mind or have you explored it? Um, I've done a little bit of testing with them, but in general, they just don't offer enough for the points. Uh, a lot of the Tau stuff in general is just 
a bit too overcosted, uh, even after chapter approved, reduce some of them. Um, they just don't have the damage output uh, or the durability. Um, so I've considered adding the marksman. I think that's a pretty good add if you want to either drop a few of the shield drones or if you want to drop one of the Pathfinder teams. Um, but I've done so well with this iteration that I have decided not to change anything until the uh, fall FAQ comes out and perhaps changes the meta significantly. Yeah, I think that's probably a really good call. I mean, if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. One thing that also kind of struck me is your Riptides all have the shoot flyers equipment. Is that right? Yeah, they have the velocity tracker, so they get plus one to hit against units with the fly keyword. Yeah, so that's a very meta choice, in my opinion, where you have, you're opting for the plus one to hit against the fly keyword acknowledging the Elder Flyers are everywhere, and they're very powerful. Um, but it's not just useful there. It's useful against Dark Elder with their Venoms and Ravagers, which admittedly you probably don't struggle with as a Tau army. Um, although it is probably just worse, right, against other mainstay armies like Genes to the Cult with literally zero fly models, Oryx with zero fly models, Chaos where the only flying stuff is like a Demon Prince, which is the last thing you're shooting at. So... Is it because you feel you're weak to flyer spam and it gives you the the leg up in that matchup? Or is there something else we're not considering with that choice for velocity tracker over the target lock? Uh, it's great against the Caladius tanks, which are everywhere too. But in general, yes, the Eldar matchup is very prominent in our local meta. Um, and without the velocity trackers, the list can still win those games, but it's a lot closer. Whereas with the velocity trackers and the Sibmanders, it's very, very difficult for the Eldar players to win. Um, in the games that I've played. Yeah, I know. At ATC, our team played your team. And uh, I was instructed by our Tau player <laughs> that our Flyer player would absolutely destroy you and your Taoist. <laughs> so I happily paired that together, and boy, was I disappointed. <laughs> I think that's a, it's a really fair point on the Caladiuses and yeah. how it helps your LR. You're not concerned at all that it, it neuters you against Gene Circles or Demons or anything like that? Um... If Eldar Flyers and the Caladius tanks, you know, are nerfed in some way in the Vol FAQ, I would absolutely drop the hoverboard on the Ethereal to get target locks on the Riptides. Um, because, as you say, it's much better against things like Gene Circle than Chaos. That makes total sense. So it's completely just a meta call. Like, right now you value its, its worth against Caladiuses and Flyer spam as a higher payoff than the negative you receive by not having target locks versus the other armies. And that's totally fair. Those are the kinds of choices you make at a top level play when assessing your meta and creating your own army. So I can totally get behind that. Um, one thing, totally off topic, I mean, still Tau topic, but you know, um, I've seen some Tau players run a lot of Fire Warriors, like three battalions worth of battalion brigade, or like a large 12-man to hang out with Darkstrider um, and use that as their primary means of anti-infantry while using like the Riptide tricks and just buckets of drones as you have to avoid being wrapped. Um, and just, you know, way to fire Overwatch kind of stuff to avoid being wrapped. Do you think there's any real merits to that or is that more, if your, if your table doesn't really have terrain that blocks line of sight, that's where it would be more powerful or is that very much terrain dependent? I think it's terrain dependent, but I also think in this meta where we're seeing so many vehicles, so many stacking minuses to hit, that those the Fire Warriors' um, viability against all of that is limited. Sure, you're going to have board control, um, and it's fine sacrificing your Fire Warriors, 
but they're not that durable. I mean, they still get picked up pretty easily. Um, you know, in the mirror matchup, they're just a single Riptide is going to go pick up a squad. Um, a commander will pick up a squad. Um, and that's another reason the velocity trackers are particularly powerful is that they're amazing in the mirror matchup as well. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's more of a European style build that runs the the mass fire warriors, and even then, it's become less popular as the game has gotten more tank based since the clade that Castellan has taken a step back. Um, but that said, it, it was dominating Europe for a matter of months, so I figured it was worth at least mentioning in this podcast. I don't think it's bad by any means. Uh, it's just more difficult to play. Uh, and it's riskier, certainly against armies like Green Circle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You could one small mistake, and all of a sudden your fireworks wrapped, and the game's basically over. Uh-huh. Do you find Tau to be high stress levels? Because uh, at least for me, against Gene Sealer Cult, I was sweating my balls off. Pardon my French. Um, like every screen had to be so perfect. I had to watch demo bikes, the Keller morphs, the, the just you know nonsense, perfect ambush charging you. Flamer Bomb, all that stuff was, was very... At this point, I'm more just bitching about Gene Stealer Cult, but real, it's so much more impactful as Tau, because as any other army, you screw up your screen, you lose a unit, you try to move on. With Tau, you screw up your screen, you get wrapped, you basically just lose. Um, so in general, my philosophy is it's just a game, so I don't really get stressed when I play the game. I'm just there to have fun. I'm spending my weekend to usually travel, um, and play, you know, five games. So I don't really know. stress may have been a bit of a harsh yeah. word. I guess are you concerned with? But I te- are you like yeah? So I get to practice against John Lennon as my Gene Circle opponent, and so after playing against him, you know, a whole bunch of times, playing against almost any other Gene Circle player is a lot less of a concern um, because Gene Circle, I think, in my opinion, is the highest skill cap army. Um, so the better player you are, the more you know the army. Um, you know, there's a tremendous gap between the couple top Gene Circle players and then your average Gene Circle player. So I think if you get to practice against your players, um, the matchup itself is far less of a concern. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I said I'll save the most of the matchup talk for the next part, so I will stay true to that and switch topics. Uh, John, do you have any questions you want to ask right now? Yeah, I just, uh, just I guess as a a nice summary. If you want to summarize what your strategy is in uh, ITC, uh, just in a couple sentences, and then does it change at all for Nova or some of the other formats that you might play? So this list is designed particularly for the ITC Champions missions. Um, I unfortunately can't go to Nova this year, um, so that really hasn't fit into my thoughts. But if I was going to Nova, I would absolutely add the Fire Warriors into the list because of the rank and file secondary. Or if you don't have troops, you're just giving up an automatic four points. Um, and that's just too much to give up, I think. Um, maybe I would only take one fire war unit and try and hide it as best as possible. But I'd probably just take the battalion instead. Um, so that would be the change I would make there. Um, and then my general strategy for ITC is try and kill at least one thing a turn hold, and try and hold more. I prefer holding more early on with the drones and the screening units. Um, and then getting kill more turns four, five, and six um, after I've taken care of the couple key threats that can really kill Riptides. Um, and I almost always manka and take control of the center of the board with this list so that if they want to contest the objectives in the midfield, they're coming into commander range. Um, so that's generally my strategy. And then philosophy-wise, 
It's playing patient. Take your time, uh, really be precise in the mid phase, especially, um, and then not really worry about you know trying to table your opponent. Just play as patient as possible, get the points that you can get, and then really you're going to start winning the game turns four, five, and six. Don't worry if you're behind in points. It's so funny that you're preaching patience here. It's like my number one thing I teach on Nights the Game Table Pro is just exercise <laughs> patience, restraint, all that stuff. It's a six-turn game, not a two-turn game. I, I could not agree more. Um, but while you were talking about different formats, I did have a question that came up. Um, mm -hmm. Different formats are obviously very impacted by terrain, and if, especially if it's a known kind of terrain. So like Nova, you know there's going to be two giant L line of sight pieces on your table every time. Whereas ITC, the table may not be 100% known, but you do have the threat of there being potentially a lot of magic boxes on your table. So do you, how do you deal with different types of terrain at various different events? Because how I feel like are more impacted by terrain than probably any other army. Mm -hmm. um, so terrain-wise, uh, Nova in particular is the worst terrain format for the suit tau list. And that is because, as you said, there's those two large L's in the middle. And my army wants to be sitting in the middle of the field. Um, so... And that's just very risky against units like Grotesques or Aberrants, which can just walk through the wall uh, and do a tremendous amount of damage to you. So you're going to have to play a bit cagier in the Nova format. And in that format, I would definitely take target locks over the velocity trackers because you're going to be constantly moving, and it's more difficult to get the five marker lights on a unit, or at least four marker lights on a unit that's in the L uh, without moving. Um, so those are the changes I would make there. Um, Interesting. You don't find that magic boxes are actually harder for you to deal with than the Nova Elves? Uh, I don't mind the magic boxes because I can hide drones. Usually, if they're usually there's a the top is off in our local meta, or there's holes, and as long as you can put the models in there, um, I can put the shield drones in. Um, you know, as long as there's a space you can actually physically put them in. Um, right. So you're actually using the drone the, the magic boxes to your own advantage. Not. I was thinking more like okay, the other guy's hiding all of his stuff in this magic box and you can't shoot anything besides some SMS here and there. You're like, screw it, I don't care. I'll just make my army unshootable too. Exactly, and then I'll just play the mission and try and get a couple more points than you. Um, or, you know, you can do the cheeky thing where you just put the barrel of the gun into the, you know, the magic box, you know, into the door or whatever, and then technically you have line of sight to the unit. Um, so if your commanders are like putting their cyclic ions in the box, uh, it's going to be a bad time for whatever's in there. Uh, another thing is that I have eight characters, and surprisingly, they are actually very good in combat. They have a whole bunch of attacks, they hit on threes, um, the commanders have minus one in combat because of ATS, because that minus one is on all weapons, including your generic combat fists. Um, so with all of their attacks, they can actually do a decent number of, you know, do a decent amount of damage to units hiding in boxes. Are you talking about the drones that hit on fives and are strength three? Uh, the Kadra Fireblades, Dark Strike. Oh, the characters, the characters. Yeah, sorry. the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a weirdly high amount of attacks. They're still characters, I guess. But yeah, absolutely. Um, we do have a question from one of our patrons. Um, he would like to know, what do you think would have to happen for Crisis Suits to have a place in a competitive talent list? Uh, so Brian Pullen on the West Coast, he tends to use you know the last few lists that I've seen. He uses the Crisis Bomb, um, mostly with the Cyclic Ion Blasters on them. Um, 
I don't think it's bad by any means. I just think it's a little bit less effective. Um, when you say crisis bomb, do you mean like a full unit of nine with three cyclic ions each or two and an ATS on every single guy? Pretty much, yes. It's almost a full full unit, um, mostly with cyclic ion. Um, That's so many points. <laughs> it's a lot of points, but he basically dropped his broadsides from the BAO version and then put the crisis suits in. They're more mobile. He can deep strike them in. Um, cyclic ion is one of the best, you know, it is the best weapon that Tau have, the suit list. Um, but I just think it's better to have the commanders with them because of all the minuses to hit. Um, and with that crisis unit, you're yeah, just... Yeah, especially like if you're shooting plague bearers or flyers, all of a sudden your BS4 might as well be BS6. Yeah, and you're just taking too many mortals on the whole unit. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because you're not, it's not, is that every guy will take a mortal or is that... I believe the unit. Models. I believe the unit takes a mortal. Takes the mortals. Whoever's okay. wounded so has to take it. You're not walking around with like a bunch of crisis suits on two wounds instead of three. You're walking around with a six man and a five man. Exactly. Yeah. Man over and over. That's gonna hurt. Yeah. Um, I once dabbled, and this is more me just talking. I once dabbled with a unit of nine crisis suits with two airburst frags and an ATS <laughs> on every single guy with rerolls to wound. And it was pretty cheap. This is not an overly expensive unit for nine crisis suits. I mean, it's like 400 points. But uh, it was pretty good. I picked up like seven grotesques in the one game I tried in one shooting phase. I was very yeah. happy with it. Have you, have you ever considered anything like that at all? Burst cannons, uh, airburst? I haven't run it myself. Um, but the airburst is very useful. I wish it wasn't D6 because and strength four. Those yeah, are the, D six and strength four are very sad numbers. Yeah, everything else is at least strength five. So I wish it was strength five, but um, I at think that the airburst. You're literally shooting mortars at your opponent just from eighteen inches away. Pretty much, um, but I think it's just better to have um, commanders instead filling that role. So if I would do it, I would just take three cold stars with the three of the airburst and ATS, one with the relic. Um, I just, BS2 is just so crucial because you're not going to be getting marker lights. That's out of line of sight. It makes sense. So um, I want to save some stuff for the next episode because I have a lot I want to cover there. John, do you have anything else you want to ask here over in part one? I just want to take a moment to thank you, Richard, for coming on this episode with us and really illuminating, I think, kind of a unique Tao style. I haven't really seen a lot of people talk about board control, scoring objectives uh, early in the game. Like, it's it's a very different way to think about Tau. It's really cool. Yeah, I'd also like to thank you, Richard. Um, out of all the guests we've had on so far, I've had a fairly decent understanding of the armies they played. I was playing against them or playing with that army myself. This Tau army, I played with Tau before I played against Tau all the time. But your approach to Tau is one I've not really seen. So it's very insightful. And I want to thank you personally for coming on and talking about it. Uh, thanks again for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. So if anyone wants to find you or if you create any content or your group, where can they go to check you out? Uh, in general, uh, you can check me out on the Team Brohammer public page. Um, or I have a Twitter account, Richard Siegler III, uh, which tends to post academic stuff. Um, but you can also contact me through Facebook, uh, and a lot of Tau players have. Um, so feel free to ask me questions. Awesome. So if you guys are interested in Tau, feel free to bother Richard. You hear, heard it here first. Um, mail stuff to his house. He loves that. 
Um, <laughs> definitely show up at his doorstep even. Uh, I'm sure he'll love to host you for dinner. He's a great guy. Um, if you're interested in learning more about 40K at a higher level, not just about Tau, but on any subject matter, um, check out Knights of the Game Table Pro. That's my own personal coaching page. Um, I talk about all things 40K. I teach classes, do live stream battle reports, all kinds of stuff. Feel free to message me on Facebook if you have any questions on that or check it out on knightsofthegametable.com. Um, but yeah, you're listening to the Art of War 40K podcast. This was our fourth episode woohoo, with Richard Ziegler, part one with Tao. Um, thanks for listening, guys. Yep. And if you'd like to hear part two, you have to join our Patreon, which can be found at uh, AOW40K.com. And then um, you can be like our, our buddy Beats here and uh, actually listen live while we record. So pretty cool stuff. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com Where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.